Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, my colleague Tom Kenny and myself, Ronnie O'Gorman, produce a page in the Galway Advertiser with Tom's photograph and a story from Galway's past. We contact each other beforehand to see what has been published that week. And our podcast today is That Conversation. Tom, I was accosted last week after our talk by people who said to me, several people who said to me, why didn't you talk more about Parnell, that he deserves, and indeed he does deserve a long, long programme to himself. I, I really couldn't justify talking more about him than what I did. But I have an anecdote that I just might satisfy some people, Parnell and Railways believe it or not. Um, I don't know if you remember, Tom, I think it was the 1980s, uh, NUIG had a policy of outreach programs, and particularly uh, history that I was aware of. They went out to various parts of the country, to pubs and hotels, and they talked about various subjects. I know Gerard O'Toohey did it, and I know T.P. O'Neill did it, because T.P. O'Neill had an outreach history program on Parnell in none other than Tiffy Winkle's pub in Kinvara. Now, you're probably too young to remember Tiffy Winkle. Oh, indeed, I remember the quality <laughs> of the pints. An erudite and charming lady that it ran a was. wonderful pub in the heart of Kinvara and was very popular with visitors and locals. But anyway, in that bar, uh, TP spoke to an absolutely jammed, packed audience. I mean, you had to stand up holding you, the drink in your hand and there was deep silence. And he spoke about Parnell, it was great. But anyway, he told this anecdote, I always remember it, that Parnell, of course, was immensely popular at the height of his powers and home rule was in his grasp. I think nothing else was talked about in Ireland but home rule and the possibility and how everything would be different. Oh, dear. Those, those wonderful flights of fancy that people had. But nevertheless, home rule definitely seemed to be coming down the road. And when Parnell travelled around the country, as he did extensively, to speak at meetings and to you know, keep everybody's uh, excitement up to a certain peak, to welcome home rule because he was sure it was coming, he went by train and the, the carriage in which Parnell traveled was always the brightest list carriage on the train. He was always he always traveled with journalists and various uh, secretaries and members of the Irish Parliamentary Party. And uh, the gas was on full, full belt. And uh, when people used to gather along the track, especially when they thought the train would slow down at various places, people would gather looking out for Parnell's carriage. And when Parnell's carriage passed, the crowd would shout out, Parnell, Parnell, and off the train would go. So just a nice anecdote, I thought, of the power of Parnell and how, yes. you know, he was looked upon by the plain people of Ireland. Indeed, when Home Rule eventually came in 1922, there wasn't that much of a change. There wasn't that much of a change, but at least we were in control of our own destiny. Anyway, Tom, sorry. What are you going to talk to us about this week? A couple of weeks ago, I wrote about uh, country butter. Um, at the Saturday market. I loved it. I loved it. Yes. Well, a lot of, there was a lot of response to it. A lot of people remember country butter very fondly. But 
I would say the ink was hardly dry on the Galway Advertiser when David Barrett sent me a copy of a report of a court case in Galway in 1910. It was held in front of the magistrates at the Petty Sessions in Galway in September 1910. Right. Uh, in which a lady, uh, Mrs. Ban from my column, was prosecuted on three different counts of selling butter. That, yeah. in fact, was unfit for human consumption. Oh, Lord, that's terrible. There were three three women uh, <laughs> oh, my goodness. who turned up uh, to whom she had sold some butter. Uh, 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 Mr. Hildebrand, he was a district inspector. He led the prosecution, and uh, Mr. Cook from Blake and Kenny solicitors appeared for the defence. Mm. So the first witness up was Kate Hoare from Maingard Street. Hoare's had a shop on Maingard Street at the time. And she had purchased butter made up of two rolls from the defendant <clears throat> on Saturday, August the 23rd. She found it wasn't butter at all that was in the middle, but some other substance that had been done up with the butter on the outside. She wasn't sure what the substance was. She thought it might be grease. But she went back, it was just around the corner to the market within 20 minutes. And when the defendant saw her, she began to kind of walk <laughs> away. But Mrs. Hoare persisted. What <laughs> kind of butter were you selling me? There you go. Oh, just, just leave it in the basket and I'll give you your money back, said <laughs> But in fact, Mrs. Hoare went to the police. Uh, that same day, and Mary Griffin from Lower Merchants Road, she bought two rolls of butter for six shillings. So yeah. they must have been quite substantial. Yeah. And the same from the same lady. She took it home and it tasted absolutely awful. It wasn't butter at all in the middle. It was just a slight coating on the outside, polished coating of butter. Mm. Uh, and she took it back to uh, the defendant again, almost at the same time as Mrs. Hoare. And the defendant said to her, well, how do I know what you did with my butter once you, since you took it? But the butter was produced in court, as it happened. <laughs> so the Mr. Cook, the solicitor for the defense, said, well, how long did it take you to go home with the butter? It didn't take me long, she said, but it took me much shorter to get back with it, <clears throat> uh, which produced apparently a lot of laughter in court. And then there was Nora Joyce from St. John's Terrace, and she had paid two shillings and sevenpence for butter. What was on the inside was different to what was on the outside. And when she went back, the defendant told her it wasn't her butter. Uh, and then some women from her area, from the defendant's area in my column, gathered around and they accused this Nora Joyce of doing something to the butter herself. Ooh. So she also went to the police. And, of course, it ended up in court where the defendant told the court, yes, that she agreed. She sold them butter. And if they were sure that it was the butter she sold them, she would give back the money. Uh, and then a Mrs. Emily Barrett uh, was a witness <clears throat> for the defense. Uh, she actually had a famous cake-making business later in Abbeygate Street. And she stated in court, yes, that she bought butter from the defendant, occasionally, in fact, and it was always good. No. So the defense's case was that all the butter sold on that day came from the same churn, and the butter complained of was not the defendant's. So then Dr. McDonough examined the butter, and he said that it wasn't fit for human consumption. <laughs> and this was all very dramatic, I'm sure. Oh, all yes. Yes. Yeah. 
watching this. The prosecutor said he never asked ever for a prison sentence where a fine could be imposed instead. But if the defendant had prepared and sold butter to poor people with the price of food so dear, he felt the magistrates should really protect the people of Galway, uh, the public people of Galway, by imposing a prison sentence. And then it was the turn of the magistrate, the chairman of the magistrates, and he said that uh, it was the prosecution was made under an act which had been passed a very long time before, uh, a long time before questions of public health were considered. But the case was proven, and so he was bound in the interests of the public uh, to inflict, inflict the very limited, as he called it, penalty of one month's imprisonment in My each case to run consecutively. So she was going to jail for three months. The, her defence counsel pleaded that she had three children, but the magistrates would, under no circumstances, change or mitigate the uh, penalty. And so when I thought about this afterward, the photograph I have used is of the section of the market that was known as the egg and butter market. And this was on Church Street alongside Garrity's shop there and Sheridan's cheese shop. That yeah, area, yes, I know. that was where uh, that section of the market took place. But it occurred to me afterwards that possibly the reasons why the quality of country butter on the market was always so good thereafter may have been due to this lady. <laughs> and uh, nobody wanted to go to jail for three months for making country butter. Exactly. Right. But that's this week. That's- that's an extraordinary story. I never heard it now. No, nor I. But of course, I could, butter is terribly important, especially to Irish people. I think we like our bread buttered, obviously, but we put butter in practically everything on vegetables right. and on, um, you know, salads and not salads, but salad oil, um, you, cakes. You can't imagine cakes without a big pile of butter. And I think we're quite um, iffy about butter, so I can understand the anger. But a jail sentence now was was quite severe. Well, three months was very severe. <laughs> I don't know how long she spent in jail, oh, but it was certainly way. a warning, a warning to I all others to As not mess say. with the butter. <laughs> well, Tom, I'm glad to say that at long last I've actually got to the start of the Galway-Clifton Railway. After all my going around the country trying to find out the reasons First of all, for having a railway in the first place, due to Balfour's belief that, you know, help must be given to people living in far out districts. And um, I, indeed, I questioned the choice of putting the railway through the middle of Connemara, not taking it around the coast road because of fisheries. And I think you correctly pointed out that would be far more expensive, that particular route. Anyway, it was decided by a royal commission. It was to go the way it did. And, well, uh, again, the chief secretary's office, Balfour's office, was really put the pressure on um, the uh, railway company to get a move on, employ as many people as you can. We want this scheme up and running as soon as possible. And the result was that when it actually started in uh, January, middle of winter, and it would never have started in the middle of winter only for the pressure coming from Dublin Castle in 1980. Um, it, it was dark. 
and uh, the, the, the poor man who was set up to kind of coordinate the whole building of it um, fell foul because he didn't have all the plans and uh, some of the land wasn't even bought off the landowners at the time, but still the pressure was on. So he started employing people and uh, they started at Mamcroft Station. That was a fairly safe place to start, kind of in the middle. And um, then he found out that it wouldn't be fair, he felt, to pay people for working daylight hours. They worked from six in the morning till six in the evening. They got 12 shillings a week, which was quite a lot. And But he said, no, 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 it's not bright until nine o'clock or 10 o'clock. I'm not paying you the 12 shillings. I'm deducting money for, this is not in daylight hours. And of course there was a strike and to end the strike cost another sixpence on top of the 12 shillings. And that man lost his job. The second man was, <laughs> was equally uh, at fault, but he ran up personal bills with the traders in Galway and uh, the railway company refused to accept or to pay for those bills. So he had to go, but he contacted um, a company of solicitors in Liverpool to fight his case. He felt he was unfairly dismissed. The last man, T.H. Faulkner, was really brilliant. And he actually got the whole thing underway, even though he didn't have all the plans that were still being done. He didn't have all the engineering reports that were still coming together, but he decided to push on. Now, there was a lot of work, of course, there. He employed about a thousand people. Imagine that in the middle of Connemara at that yeah. time, at the very end of the 19th century, a thousand people and more indeed. And in order to keep people at the work, he decided to build a series of huts along the railway track which meant that they didn't have to go home. Obviously, home was too far away. He could keep their, he could keep their noses uh, to the grindstone and keep on working. And he could employ then some of the people from the coastal areas that was outside their reach. They could come along and stay in the huts. There were never enough beds in the huts, however. But these huts became the centre of a certain amount of activity. And, uh, you know, then they opened, uh, uh, in Ballinaflad, they opened a provisions shop. And don't forget, all these men were being paid 12 shillings a week, which was a lot of money in those days. Well, it was a reasonable sum of money in those days. So they all took part in buying stuff in the provisions shop that was there in Ballinaflad. Local people came to shop there. And, of course, as you can imagine, it was like the American West uh, Shibin opened, Puchin was being sold, and girls came and chatted to the men, and the men were delighted to see the girls, and there was all kinds of problems with that. The parish priest came down felt that the whole morality of the centre of Connemara was being destroyed. He begged the uh, Midland Railway Company to come along to interfere at once and to stop, close down the Shebeen and to restore a moral sort of decorum about the place, that these were hardworking men and they were being corrupted by all these terrible things that were going on. But that never happened. And the Shebeen never closed for the five years <laughs> that they were building. And in fact, rumours had it that in fact, the, it took, they hoped to have the railway done in, in two and a half years. It took five years. And some people were bold enough to suggest that it took that long because everyone was having such a good time. And, and indeed, it was a wonderful thing, this great circus, if you like, going through the centre of Connemara at that time, giving wonderful employment, 
paying people reasonable sums of money and on a project that everybody felt was good, was, was good for the area, the work was outstanding. And indeed, as we know, the, the finished job was magnificent. And on New Year's Day, New Year's Day, um, 1895, the first train left from Galway to Gerard. And uh, the rest of the line came in in a, in a few months after that. It was all, it was all, all up and running uh, at, by the end of 1895. And the, um, the Midland Railway Company indeed were delighted with it. They, um, uh, Mr. Tatler was his name. He came down, he was one of the managing directors. He came down with a crowd of Dublin journalists. They went as far as Uterard and then they came back to go away immediately, went straight into the railway hotel where they took part in a, in a celebration and no one could begrudge them. So at long last, Tom, I'm coming to the end of the railway line. <laughs> There's still another bit. It's like to... waiting for Gatto. A little Anyways. bit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I did go round about the bushes, I will admit. There's still another bit uh, to go next week, but um, nevertheless, that was it. So I must say I enjoyed the story. I am enjoying the railway story. Wonderful benefit to the people. Of course, oh, yes. it was absolutely yes. tragic. That was, you know, dismantled. And, yeah, yeah. You know. it was criminal, Yeah, really, uh, when you think of it. And, um, and just left. Yeah, you know, and destroying that bridge. I know. Yes, I, mean, I knew quite a number of people who <coughs> used to. Uh, they would wait at the end of the tunnel, uh, which went from the station through under Bohermore. Yes, and they would run in front of the train when the train <laughs> was coming along, and then jump into the river off the bridge. Oh, yeah. uh, I also met a couple of fellows who used to do the old trick of uh, putting a halfpenny on the track on yes. the bridge and waiting for the train to squash it into a penny, <laughs> uh, which they hoped it would anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, it, you know, there were all kinds of excitements associated with it. And uh, it's definitely, definitely the subject of an important book. Oh, I agree. I agree. Now, I, I have been using um, um, Kathleen Villiers' Tuttle book uh, this week, uh, Beyond the Twelve Bends. Really remarkable book. It's in, her it's in its fifth edition, in all fairness. It's a wonderful yeah. book. She keeps updating it, and uh, long may she do so. Amen. She has... Amen. She has a good chapter on the railway, but she, of course she's had to write about other things as well. It does need a dedicated book uh, to describe, you know, this amazing, you know, happening that, that, that came to the middle of Connemara. Uh, yeah. It never happened again, but it was wonderful. And of course, it did bring uh, tourism. Uh, as we know, uh, the, the hotel, the, the hotel at recess uh, opened especially to cater for the British and good Dublin tourists that came down for the fishing and shooting. And uh, but above all, yep. above all, uh, Clifton benefited the most. This was a town, don't forget, that was cut off. Uh, in the winter months, because it was uh, the sea were too rough to bring provisions around by sea, the road was washed out. was a mud was a mud path anyway, and so Clifton really came forward uh, from being a backwater into one of the most foremost 
towns in Ireland, really. It is a magnificent town and, yeah. uh, you know, deserves its place. And I do feel without the, the railroad, it may have fallen into the sea or something like that. But thank yes, God indeed. it didn't. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So will we, will we leave it at that, Tom? Okay, Ronnie, yeah. I know, yeah. it's a I'm pleasure. I'm forward Tom. to reading The yeah. Railroad. Well, okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Tom. And you okay. take care. Yeah, yeah. we'll talk yeah. soon. Yeah. Bye-bye. God bless. Tom. All right.